Is that good? I genuinely can't tell if that's good. Hey, what's up? It's Aiden Jones. You're listening to Sitting Under a Tree for Tuesday, the 19th of December, 2023. Man, it's a very special episode right now. This is, all right, I'm in, uh, it's currently 3.40am. I'm at my dad's house in Ardrossan on um, on the York Peninsula in South Australia. And fuck, it's the week before Christmas. How about that? I can't sleep. Uh, I don't have a tea. I don't even have a tea today, man. I just, I can't sleep. I've been um, tossing and turning for like an hour and a half. And um, I've just been thinking about my show. Man, so it's Tuesday morning. I'm flying back to Melbourne today. And um, I've got a tour on Wednesday. So... I'm just trying to lay low today. I'm trying to, I'm going to eat healthy, try and get some good sleep on Tuesday night so that uh, I'm ready for my full day of driving the bus on Wednesday. But man, Saturday night, I just, I've, I've, I feel very, um, I feel really good at the moment. And I think a big part of that is Saturday night, I took mushrooms with some friends and I just, I th- I think I just want to talk to you guys about the show, man. I think I just want to tell you guys the ideas that I've been having about the show. Like, what I've been thinking just now as I kind of roll around in my bed. I, um, the room is... My dad and his partner moved into this house. It's a new house. They moved in like three days ago. And um, I don't know if everything is like fully working yet because the fan isn't working. I tried to turn the fan on. It's not working. <laughs> it's not working <laughs> and um the uh the room was kind of hot but it's like it's really blowing a gale outside it's kind of gusty and um i know it's not hot outside so i thought i would open the window but then because i opened the window like it's been very loud in the room but i kind of like it it's really like, it's really super windy outside and I think there even might have been a bit of a storm earlier, I don't know, but it just, it's kind of comforting, you know, when there's like a lot of kind of wild weather outside and then you're in a safe room, you know, and I've got this big heavy quilt, which is really warm, but the wind blowing through the window is blowing into the room and then out underneath the door and it's making this whistling sound out underneath the door, which is very violent. I almost felt a bit scared before. I felt... I don't know, when I was like half asleep and the wind was blowing in and I just, this is an unfamiliar place, this house, and I kind of felt a little bit scared of the dark and of the night. I remember when I was a kid, I used to um, be scared of just like the empty dark passageway, you know, and I would wake up and need a pee. I used to wet the bed when I was a kid. I wet the bed until I was like pretty old, like 10 maybe. Oh man, it was so embarrassing. I remember I would wake up in the middle of the night having wet the bed and it would always be the same, you know. I'd be dreaming that I needed to go to the toilet and so I would pee in my dream and then I would wake up and I'd be in the middle of peeing and I'd be like, oh no, it happened again. (laughs) And I wouldn't even get out of bed. I would just shout. 
I would just call my mom. <laughs> I think I went to bed. <laughs> That's what I would do. And it's like, you think you went to bed? Can't you fucking went to bed? <laughs> and my mom, my mom would come and she would like do it for me and she'd be all really nice about it. And sometimes it would be, sometimes it would be my dad and he would just be not impressed. Like when my mum did it, she was always like, oh, that's okay, you know, come on, let's get it changed. When my dad would come, he just like wouldn't say much. He'd just be like, all right, come on. And he's just like, you know, he's like, a, he doesn't have the tender touch <laughs> of a mother. He's a bit rough around the edges. <laughs> I, would, I would never feel as, um, as okay about it. <laughs> But I remember then, like, even when I was a bit older, you know, when I learned, because I eventually just learned if I'm dreaming about peeing, don't pee, wake up. I don't know. I don't know how I learned that. But then, like, sometimes I would be scared to run to the toilet. Maybe that was it. Maybe I would be too scared to go to the toilet, so I would try and just stay in bed, fall back asleep, and then I would need to pee. Because now, like, I pee quite a lot in the night and I always go I never risk it I'm always like nah get up go and pee and I reckon that's because I used to wet the bed when I was a kid so um but yeah man I remember being a kid and like leaving my bed and running down the hall and just being so scared being like, don't look, don't look, don't look, don't look, don't look, don't stop moving, don't stop walking. And then like getting to the light and like turning the light on at the toilet. Also, man, how irreplaceable is the feeling of like, I remember being a kid and walking to the bathroom and like I could do it with my eyes closed and I didn't even need to count the steps. Like I didn't, I don't know how many steps it was, but I know that I could just do it exactly without even looking because I was just so familiar with the house because I grew up in one house my whole childhood from when I was born until I moved out when I was 19. And um, I just thought, how irreplaceable is that feeling, you know? Like I could walk to the bathroom in the darkness and not need to look and not need to look like around me or behind me or like in any of the really dark places, you know. I mean, in my house in Melbourne now, I've been there for two years. I know it pretty well, but it's something else, you know, when you live there your whole life, that feeling of just like knowing every distance and especially the distance from my room to the bathroom in the middle of the night. It's interesting how, uh, I've been thinking about this in the show, it's interesting how some things that were once scary or unsettling or a source of tension and discomfort because of familiarity become almost comforting even though it's the same, it hasn't changed. Like when I felt scared earlier tonight when I was asleep, it was a bit scary. Like I, I, I never really, <laughs> I don't I mean to brag, but I never really feel scared of the dark now because I'm a big man. 
and so when I felt scared of the dark in that moment, it was it was interesting. It was it stood out. I was like, oh wow, I'm scared of the dark right now. But in a way, it was also kind of comforting because I was like, fuck. Remember when I was a kid and I used to be scared of the dark? Now I'm just scared of bloody taxes. <laughs> now I'm scared of fucking the coronavirus. <laughs> you know those hacky jokes? Anyway. Remember how we used to be scared of this, but now, if only I'd known back then what I know now. When I was a kid, I should have been scared of fucking... Getting a job. <laughs> um, man, so I really love saying, I really love swearing. And uh, today when I drove to Ardrossan from Adelaide, I stopped in a, a car park and I just had a fun, I don't know why, I guess because I'm in South Australia and it's like home. And um, I just, you know, it, it reminds me of being Australian and how I love the way the Australian language sounds when we when we swear. And uh, I was just like doing a voice of an Australian man swearing as I tried to find a park in this like car park for a tiny little cafe in this town. And I was just driving the car around towards the park just going, fucking. <laughs> like, I was just like, fucking. Yeah, fucking. Nah, fucking. Fucking, just saying fucking to myself. Because I'm in Australia and that's what we do. That is our culture. I really hope that I'm talking loud enough now and that you guys are going to be able to hear all the stuff that I'm saying on this podcast. It's a nightcast. That's why it needs to be whispered. I feel like this adds a fun element to the podcast. What a joy. It's almost, fuck man, it's almost four in the morning. But what a, what a nice thing to be able to not, to like not be able to sleep and to have something th- to wake up and just, I can just talk to you guys. How cool is that? So um, I was thinking about in the show, right? I, I, I think I just solved a problem in the show in my mind while I've been lying here, which there was one part that wasn't working that was the explanation of the moments of tension in the opening section. And I was using this story about being on drugs with all of my friends and then having a voice in my head saying you hate yourself to explain moments of tension in my life. But I just, I think I've realized that I don't like that explanation, that it's it's a bit of a stretch. It doesn't feel quite honest. And I think what I'm going to use instead is this joke that I have from an old show where I say, you know, that voice in your head that just says crazy shit sometimes like I'll be cooking in the kitchen and my housemate will walk in and just because I'm holding a knife and he's there the voice in my head goes or you could stab him if you wanted stab him go on you know like stab your mate and that's a joke that already works and so then I can use that to explain the tension and the argument between the inner voice and my rational voice where I'm like I don't want to stab him and the voice is like all right don't stab him then but like maybe just tell him that you thought of stabbing him that'd be pretty funny and I'm like I don't even want to do that that'd make him uncomfortable I don't need to do that and then the voice is like all right instead of telling him why don't you write a joke about fantasizing about stabbing your housemate and then do it in a show and then invite him to the show so he can see it but don't tell him if it's about him or not and I'm like you know what that actually is a pretty funny idea yeah why don't I do that I think that's a better story to tell 
it captures the inner tension better. Meanwhile, that's the left hand. That's the tension that exists in the left hand of the piece that I'm playing. But in the right hand, it's a nice melody. And the right hand is the conversation that I have with him outwardly while I'm struggling with those thoughts. So what actually happens is he walks into the room. I'm thinking that. But out loud, I just go, hey, man, how are you? How's it going? Having a good day? You know? And inside, it's like, stab him, do it. He'd be dead before you started crying. <laughs> I think that's it. I think that's just a better explanation for the tension. But here's something else I've noticed. I wonder if this is... Well, you know what? It's a good test. If I can explain it to you guys, then I can explain it to an audience on stage. So another part of the piece... Or of that... another. So, all right. So, so the piece is in 12-8 time. And what that means is there's 12 eighth notes to each bar or each measure eighth notes is just a it's a it's a quaver it's a kind of note right there's 12 in each bar and those 12 are split into groups of three there's four groups of three so there's 12 beats in each bar split into groups of three so it's like dun 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 and when i play that opening melody lasts for four bars right so there's four lots of 12 and in those 12 there's four lots of three and in each of the four bars, in the first three, there is a diminished chord. And in the last one, there's not. But in the last one, there's the resolution. Where does the diminished chord fall in each of those four bars? In the first bar, it falls on the second beat. In the second bar, it falls on the third beat. In the third bar, it falls on the fourth beat. And in the fourth bar, there's no diminished chord. But there is a chord that is kind of, it's not... It, it's the most tense chord in the last bar and it falls on the first beat. So it's the tension in each bar falls on the second, then the third, then the fourth, then the first. The reason it falls on the second beat in the first bar is because that's as early as it can be. It can't be on the first beat because if you started the song with tension, it wouldn't work because we need to start in the place that we start the home. You need You start at home. Where do you start on a journey? You don't... If you're on a fucking journey, you don't start halfway to the shops. You start at home. So the first beat needs to be home. But then he introduces the tension at the nearest possible opportunity. The first opportunity, which is the second the second beat, right? And so it's kind of like the way I imagine it, it's, it's two and then it's three and then it's four and then it's one. It's kind of like... The tension, it's like something, it's like it's working its way through, you know? If you imagine the bar as like a body and the tension is like some fucking big bit of food. <laughs> then it's like swallowing and then it's like working down. And also the, the tense chord in the first bar is the most tense of all the tense chords. And in the second bar, it's a bit less. And in the third bar, it's a bit less. And in the fourth bar, it's a bit less until you reach the resolution. And the end of that phrase is the resolution, which in this analogy, I guess, is like taking a shit. <laughs> you know, like you eat the thing and it's like burning and it goes down and it burns a bit less and it goes down and it burns a bit less and then finally you completely digest it and you shit it out and that's the story <laughs> it's a big poo i don't know i think that makes sense to me 
And I reckon when I'm at the piano and I play it, it'll make sense to everyone else because it kind of makes sense to me as I say it out loud now. So um, that's really cool, man. That's that's like another little bit of the show, you know? I feel like every I'm just going through it slowly. I, I, it's so exciting, man, because I'm really thinking about this so much. Like anytime I sit down to write... Or just I'm walking walking around like every now and then my mind just drifts to the show and whatever problem in the show I'm currently working on, you know it's like a it's like a shirt that I'm just slowly ironing out all the creases. Like I had the idea, the initial idea is just like a shirt, but the shirt's just full of creases, and then it takes time to just like iron out each part of the shirt and turn it over and do the collar and do the arms and the back. And uh, I can just feel it getting closer and closer. When I took mushrooms, I, um, oh, you know what I want to tell you first? I, oh, I kind of can't tell this whole story because it's a bit too personal and private. But um, I, uh, oh, you know what? No, I can't even, I, I, I don't want to tell this story. I'm not going to tell this story. I'm sorry. I did something very silly while I was on mushrooms and it was okay and it's all fine but uh, I kind of got myself worked up into a state and um, I thought that one of my friends was in trouble and it, it, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that she was in trouble. There were signs and, and you know, she appreciated my concern but ultimately I really overreacted <laughs> and like checked in on her in a way that was like... <laughs> That's way too much. I can't say it on the podcast. I want to ask her. I might end up fucking doing it as a bit of stand-up or something, but I'm not going to say it on the podcast. Um, anyway, so... But before that, right, I did mushrooms on Saturday night with a couple old friends. One of my friends, so cool. She's a psych nurse, but she's just kind of done a bit of retraining or like augmented her training. Oops, sorry. I thought the... Oh, I thought my mic had fucking gone then. Um, she's augmented her training because they just made MDMA and psilocybin and ketamine legal in Australia. I think ketamine already was, but psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms, and MDMA, which is ecstasy. They've just made it legal for therapeutic purposes because it can be really helpful in treating like... PTSD and treatment resistant depression and complex mental disorders or whatever in a clinical setting it can be really helpful evidently to use these drugs and um, she's one of the first cohort of people that's just trained to be able to administer it um, to patients in South Australia which is just the coolest fucking thing and I said to her can we do a trip together and she was like fuck yeah so we um me and her and her husband, uh, we we had a trip together on Saturday night. We took some mushrooms at the house and uh, just watched a bunch of YouTubes, had a lovely time, laughed our asses off. Um, but Sunday was my mum's birthday, so I was like, you know what, i got to go home. I can't go out too late. And uh, it was really cool, man. Like The thing about mushrooms is it makes me more empathetic it almost is like it removes a block that I have between me and being able to empathize with people around me and uh, like I had had a conversation with my mum earlier that day that was something really difficult for her and um, 
it always takes me a little bit of time to process difficult conversations, but doing mushrooms kind of gave me a bit of perspective about what she was saying and made me go like, oh, my mum just like needs me to fucking be there with her, you know, in that in that difficult situation in her life. And um, then I was also, the, that was the reason I overreacted to the thing with my friend was because like I'd had a conversation with her that day and I started thinking like, fuck man, that's really hard for her. I hope she's okay. <laughs> Um, but then, so I, so I left my friend's place at like half past midnight and, uh, I went back to mum's where I was staying in Adelaide and, um, and I've had the best time in Adelaide this trip, by the way, I think this has been my favorite trip to Adelaide. I really like, I'm starting to get it, you know, I'm starting to come around on Adelaide. It's not a city. They call it a city. It's wrong to call it a city. Like how they say LA, which I've never been to, but they say LA is like a, um, a big, like a bunch of cities all like kind of mashed together. Adelaide is like that, but it's not a bunch of cities. It's a bunch of towns. And that's why Adelaide feels like a big country town. And like you drive around Adelaide and there are so many utes and big you know, like four-wheel drives and fucking trucks and shit. It feels like a country town. It's like because people are out there doing country shit. And uh, and there's the hills, like, and it's all these different kinds of towns. Like on my mum's birthday, we went to Hallett Cove. And to get to Hallett Cove, you drive along some highways where there's like nothing on the side of the road, all that bits of forest or like, you know, open land. It's all very open. Like Melbourne... If you drive to parts of the city, where you're driving along, there's houses everywhere or, you know, like built up areas. But in Adelaide, you can drive to parts of the city and you're not driving through built up areas. You're driving through, sometimes you're driving through like really light industrial, but sometimes you're just driving through a field or like a bit of a forest on the side. I remember when I was like fucking 18 going to see this girl that I was seeing on a Sunday and uh, catching like three buses to get there. And one of the buses, like the connection, the bus stop that I connected at, I got off of one bus and then I just waited on the side of the road and it was a bus shelter and it was raining and like behind me was a forest and in front of me was just an empty field. And I waited there for like half an hour for the second bus and then the second bus came and then... Do you know what I mean? And I was like, I didn't, I hadn't left Adelaide, but that's what Adelaide is. And because it's a bunch of small towns, like that's why there's not a hugely functional public transport system because there's not enough people to support it. But that's also the charm of it because you go like, when we went to Hallett Cove, it's just like a seaside village. And like you go up into the hills where I, where I went with my friend on Saturday before I took mushrooms, we drove up to this place called the Scenic Hotel, which is up in the Adelaide Hills. And it's like, dude, it was like a 15-minute drive from her house and it was beautiful. And it's like, it's like a hotel on the side of a mountain looking back at this valley and the city. But then also Adelaide has like a little CBD, you know. And then, like, I drove to Port Adelaide to pick a friend up the other day and, like, that's its own place. It's a bunch of little towns. And um, I guess when you start to think about it like that, it's actually really charming. 
and when I grew up, I think what I wanted was to live in a big city and I, I live in a big city now. Um, but there are parts of Adelaide that have little bits of what I love about Melbourne, not as much and not as good. And some part, you know, there's some shit that you can't get in Adelaide that you can get in Melbourne, but like, fuck man, I just, yeah, I just, I, I'm starting to get it and it's really wonderful. I also went to a great bar this week called Earn Mallee, which is based on a literary hoax. Oh, it's the coolest story. Um, the, uh, in like the 1940s, this, uh, basically this lady, uh, her brother died and she found a bunch of poems under his mattress in his bed and she sent them to a publisher and said, what do you reckon of these? I'm not a poet, but like, you know, some of my friends reckon it might be good. And the the publisher read them and thought they were amazing and published them and they were a hit. And people started saying, this is amazing modernist poetry and Australia has found it's T.S. Eliot, you know, it's great modernist poet. And then after a few months when all the, there were a lot of literary articles published about this poetry and it was really exciting. Um, a couple guys came out and said, hey, the poet Earn Malley doesn't exist. We made him up and the, the, the sister doesn't exist either. We wrote the letter and we wrote all these poems in an afternoon because we hate modernist poetry and we think it sucks. And so we wrote this poetry to like make fun of modernist poetry and see if you guys would buy it and you fucking bought it. Hook, line and sinker. It was a, a, a hoax. They played a prank on the entire literary community and... Uh, and then, you know, people lost their reputations, university professors. This is the story apparently. Um, but uh, I mean, I'd never even heard of that before. I wonder, imagine if these guys invented that. That would be cool if the hoax was a hoax. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The bar's really cool. I went to the bar. Uh, on the advice of a friend, spent the night there on Tuesday, played some chess. They've got chess, they have a piano, played a bit of piano, met some cool people, had just a wonderful time and uh, went back again on Wednesday night with a friend and there was a pianist playing, just playing classical piano repertoire. He can sight read all of this stuff. It was incredible. Oh my God, I actually could not believe how amazing this guy was sight reading all this music, whatever. <sighs> So Saturday night, I take mushrooms. Sorry, I'm all over the place. Let me have another sip of my not tea. Oh, yummy water. Not tea. That's the name of this podcast this week. Not tea. It's not tea? Nah, what's it going to be called? It's going to be called the Nightcast. Yeah, the Nightcast. And the photo... Oh, I'm going to lose my light here. The lamp, the bedside lamp doesn't work in this room either at the moment. Maybe there's no power in this room. The photo is going to be... It's going to be me and my mum and my brother the other day on my mum's birthday. That's what it's going to be. Um, oh, man. Do I want to tell what what thing? I know, I know I ha- I'm trying to do this less to think out loud about what bits of the story that I want to tell. But um, I went into an antique shop the other week. Uh, the other week, yeah, last week in Adelaide, 
another great thing that's happened to me this week. I've just had a wonderful week of exploring. <laughs> I really have. I've seen family. I've seen friends. It's been awesome, man. This antique shop. I found a book. Um, it was like a little photo journal of uh, from 1935, black and white photos taken in 1935 um, that uh, so what it was was like these two women had gone on two separate uh, car journeys or like car tours like holidays in cars one in 1934 and one in 1935 with two different cars Um, and uh, the first one they went from Adelaide and they went 1700 miles I think it was my oh you know what I'll read it. They, it was a little photo journal and they'd, they'd stuck all their photos in this book and um, then like written notes next to them. So, you, you know, like they where they went and what they did and whatever. This is it. Uh, a photographic record of two never-to-be-forgotten motor tours to Victoria. The first of 1,643 miles commenced on the 29th of March, 1934, uh, and had to be curtailed by a week. Oh, no, sorry. Commenced on the 29th of November, 1934, and had to be curtailed by a week, finished on the 8th of December, 1934, on account of the unprecedented floods in Victoria. The second of 2,728 miles commenced on the 30th of November, 1935, and was completed on the 16th of December, 1935, the trip being trouble-free in every respect. And, um, yeah, they just went on some incredible journeys, these guys. And, like, the cool part of it was a lot of the places that they went to that they have photos of were places that I've been going on the tours that I've been running. They went to Port Campbell. They went to Lockhart Gorge. They went to the Twelve Apostles. And there are photos of these things in 1935 the Twelve Apostles especially, has changed. Some of the Apostles have collapsed in close to 100 years. Isn't that incredible? Um, And it also gave me some ideas of other places that I want to go. There was this one place, this mountain near Mount Buller. I can't remember what it was called, but like I want to go there. I saw their photos of it. I was like, that looks incredible. I looked it up on the map. It's there. It looks great. They've got photos of Melbourne, Collins Street in Melbourne, and it's like... Oh my God, it just looks so different. The Great Ocean Road isn't paved, it's dirt. Wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Anyway, I will get to Saturday night. Fuck, Saturday night. This is the thing. I think I've got the end of the show. I think I've figured out the end of the show. Um, so the show is I play this piece, right? And I've realized recently that the moment at the end of the piece after the, the the kind of story of the piece is this introduction of tension and then dealing with tension not by hiding it underneath a melody but by incorporating it into the melody and kind of being brave about it almost, I guess, or like like the note that creates the tension in the first chord in that first in the second beat in the first bar is a b natural or a c flat or a b natural whatever it's both 
Um, they're the same note. It's the same sound. They're just written differently. But um, that note is also in this A-flat minor chord, which appears later in the piece. And in the middle section, the A-flat minor chord is played only once and it's kind of almost tentative or it's like there's a bit of fear or it, it, the, the piece gets quieter and slower just before that A-flat minor. It's almost like Chopin is like, do I dare to look at the thing that gave me that tension before? And then towards the end of the piece, he plays it but with much more conviction and it's like, fuck yeah, I'm going to play this and it's almost like when there's a bit of tension, the way to deal with it is not by hiding from it or by being afraid of it. It's by embracing it and even in a way loving it, you know, like what I said before about being scared of the dark. It's nice to be scared of the dark. It's nice to have some tension in your life. It's nice to have something that's hard or difficult because if you didn't, then what would life be? It would just be an E-flat major chord from now until forever. <laughs> it would just be nothing. There would be nowhere to go. There'd be no journey. You'd just be sitting at home. You'd be in lockdown, which is its own kind of hell, you know? Um, and that kind of happens through the piece. And then we get to the crescendo, the big moment, and then the end of the piece and right before the last the, the, there's like the moment of just the last bit of tension before it's going to be resolved and then we're going to go back home and the piece is going to end and in that moment also the show is going to end I will have explained all of this I will have told stories done jokes had all of this stuff and then there's a there's a moment where he goes it's like it's almost like flicking the clit is kind of how I, the, the first explanation that I had for it, right? And I've I've realized recently that in that moment in the show, I need to walk away from the piano and um, find a resolution in the story before I come to the resolution in the music. But I, what I realized, I was listening to the piece or I was just thinking about the piece more when I was on Mushrooms. When I got home, I got back home and um, I... Uh, <laughs> yes <laughs> and then after that oh <laughs> I was thinking about the piece and uh, I was thinking about the music and I was just thinking about Chopin and how he would have played that because the idea well, the beautiful thing about playing this music is you get to connect with the person who wrote it and understand what they were thinking when they wrote these parts. And in that part, it's almost like, because that, that, doo -doo -doo -doo, on, the, on the music, it's written, you know, there's a certain number of doo -doo -doo -doos that are there. But like, you understand the spirit of the thing is not that there's, you have to play exactly that many. You just play it and go up and crescendo and then get slower and go down until the tension feels right and then you go to the end, right? Because it's not about playing it exactly how it's written on the page. It's about capturing the spirit of the thing. And so I thought, what was Chopin doing in that moment? 
Like it's a bit cheeky, isn't it? Like he's flicking the clit. He's playing with us. We know what's about to happen. He knows that we know. We all know what's about to happen. It's about to end. We're about to go home, but we haven't gone. We haven't rounded that last corner. It's like we're walking back to our house and you're about to round the last corner, but you, you can't quite see your house yet, but you know you're about to just around the corner. You're about to see the edge of the roof and then, and then you're going to be home. But you haven't yet. And he's playing with us. And I imagine Chopin and like him in the salons in Paris in the 19, uh, in the 1830s when this, when he would have been playing this piece and living in Paris and when he was in his peak in these tiny concerts, because he didn't play big concerts. It was little rooms. And he was like, in that moment when he's playing the, he's like looking around the room. He's like almost like winking at someone. He's like looking for someone to wink at. And when he finds them, that's when he plays the note that's the top of the run of notes that goes down towards the end. That's the little bit of your roof that you see as you come around the corner, that first note. And when he plays that note, it's almost like he winks at someone. You know? And... um I mean, that that note, that first note, that wink, that little glimmer is everything. It's the most important note in the whole piece. It's the most important moment in the show. It's, it's everything, you know? And um, when you hear someone play the piece, the way that they take that note can tell you everything that you need to know about that person because you have to take that note in the right way you can't be too soft or timid about it you have to take it with confidence but you can't be too strong and aggressive you have to be assured it's quiet but it's projected it's it's there you know and every night you're going to take it differently and it and by the way it is at night because it's a nocturne it's a piece that's it's about the night time and what and the things that happen at night time the it's private you know it's it's maybe a little bit sad there's a melancholy to it but there's also hope it might be a party it might be the greatest night of your life or you might be alone and there's like the night is also sensual it's sexual it's when you take drugs it's when you fall in love all this stuff doesn't happen in the morning it happens at night and every night if you're really there with the music and with the people in the room, every night that note is different. And that note, you you play it to some to a different person or maybe you don't play it to a person. Maybe it's for everyone. Maybe it's not for anyone. Maybe it's just for you that night. Maybe you didn't connect with them. Maybe it's for something or a feeling or something. It's different every night. And I also realize that Chopin understood that it, there needs to be people because for that part to develop for him to be playing that moment of tension and really playing it and feeling it it's for the other people in the room that's the moment when he looks up and is with the other people in the room and you can't write that unless you have some understanding of the audience of the people that you're playing for you can't write that by yourself that's on you only develop that when you're playing in front of people. And so Chopin understands that you need other people there to play. You can't play by yourself. 
and I was thinking when I was on mushrooms, what does that note mean? And like the wink, you know, like what does a wink mean? What is the moment? Maybe it's not a wink. Maybe it's a moment between him and another person. Or maybe it's not. Maybe it's between him and the crowd. What does that moment mean? And more broadly, what does this whole piece mean? And why are we sitting here listening to you play this? And why are you playing this for us? Why am I, Aiden, writing this show? Why have I written this show? What does it mean? What am I trying to tell you guys? What does any of this mean? Honestly, what does all of this mean? It's all there in that note Chopin tells us. And what it means and how I'm going to end the show is I'm going to sit there and I'm going to say all of this stuff. I'm going to figure out a succinct and short way to say it. <clears throat> and then I'm going to play the note as I say that what all of this means is it's up to you. That's what it means. It's up to you. What does a wink mean? Whatever you think it means. What do you think it means? You know? That's it. Because in that moment, when he's playing, 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 he's looking for something around the room. And then when he plays that note, he, ding, finds the thing that he's looking for. And what's he looking for? And what does he find? It's up to you. Because whatever you go looking for, I realize whatever you go looking for in this life, that's what you're going to find. And you'll find it. But if you go looking for the wrong, like if, well, not the wrong things, if you go looking for like, like, you know, this show, right? How I said this shit to my biological dad. If I want to go looking for a man who abandoned me, I'll find him, you know? And if I want to keep going back to that guy and asking him more and more questions about why did you do it and be angry and try and blah, blah, blah I'll find anger. But if you go looking for, you know, it's people who love you, <laughs> something great, something worth finding, you'll find that too. Whatever you look for, that that's the direction you're going to be going in and that's what you're going to find. And it's like, it's like you create your own life. If you want to look for the bad in people, you'll find it because everyone's got that in them. But if you want to look for the good in people, you'll find that too. And in that moment, Chopin goes looking for something and then he finds it. <sighs> so, yeah, that's what I realized when I was on mushrooms. And then I <laughs> drove my car to the other side of the city to my friend's house <laughs> because, because I thought she was going to take her own life. <laughs> And she was just asleep, but I, but I wasn't sure. And I called the cops. I wasn't sure what to do. And they were like, man, you know, we won't be able to get someone there for a few hours. Is there a chance she's asleep? And I was like, yeah, she's probably asleep. And they were like, okay, you know, what are you going to do? And I was like, I'm probably going to go home. And they were like, all right, go home. And I went home. And then in the morning I woke up <laughs> to a message from her saying, oh my God, the police came to my house and asked me if I was going to kill myself. I love you guys. Thank you very much for listening. 
This has been Aiden Jones on the Nightcast, sitting under a tree. Peace. <laughs>